2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey there. Uh, welcome to the first episode of the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky of Longform. I'm sitting here with Aaron Lammer, also of Longform. Hey. Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Hey. Um, and a quick word just before we dive in. We started this show uh, for two reasons. One is we were sitting around the office and having a lot of these conversations anyway. And about, also for the money. Yeah, it's <laughs> we're, we're really in it for the cash. Um, but also because we wanted to... Uh, Get to know some of these writers whose work we admire. Evan, you talked to Matt Akins for this episode. That's right. Matt is uh, a writer for I think he's probably best known for his Harper's pieces, nominated for a National Magazine Award for a piece in the Atlantic as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he just had the the siege of September 11th story come out in GQ. But why did you pick Matt for this first episode? Well, Matt is. Uh, you know, a lot of times you would say about a about a foreign journalist, somebody goes overseas and, you know, goes into war zones or what have you, that they're intrepid. And he's sort of like the step beyond intrepid, where it's not just like he's going and getting a fixer and reporting a story. He's done stories where he really, really put himself in the middle of the story to the point of being sometimes they're even first person pieces, but where he is very much a part of the story and he has taken some you know, frankly, you know, serious risks with his own life in order to tell these stories. And I feel like for such a young journalist who came into writing for magazines from a kind of, you know, oblique path, um, he's just a really interesting guy, both his background and his kind of like approach. So, yeah, I, I think that that pretty much covers it. Um, all the stories talked about in here should be in the show notes. Um, definitely recommend checking out um, his Harper's piece, Master of the Spin Bold Act, is really one of the most memorable pieces of war journalism that, that I've read. And um, ready to take it away, Evan? Yep. All right. Matt Akins. All right. So I'm here with Matt, Matthew Akins, Matthew being your pen name to talk about his work, uh, a lot of which comes from Afghanistan. Um, he was recently named a finalist for the National Magazine Award for reporting. 
and I think has already won Canadian National Magazine Awards. I'm less familiar with the Canadian National Magazine Awards, but I've noted that you have won at least one and perhaps They're more than one in the past. trading at about 0.99 to the <laughs> American National Magazine Award right now, actually. So it's a good exchange rate. Um, and I've also known Matt for now, what, a couple of years? Yes, I can't yeah. remember exactly how we met originally. You don't. It's a romantic story of the, of, you know, happenstance in the digital 2.0 age. Twitter? That's right. Yes, of You course. tweeted at me. And I tweeted back at you. This is before yeah. the Atavist. Yeah, that's right. So now we're both living in New York. You're traveling all over the world doing stories. But prior to that, I want to know, first of all, how a little bit about how you got into this racket. Because now you pitch a story to GQ or GQ contacts you and they say, we want you to go to Afghanistan or Libya or wherever. But you know, how does someone get there from being... What, a college kid who wanted to do journalism? A college kid who wanted to do writing? What, give me a little bit about where you were when you kind of like jumped into journalism. So in college, at some point, I realized that the fiction I was writing was thinly disguised autobiography, and it was terrible because I was completely uninteresting as a person. It's good to realize that in time. <laughs> yeah, right. At the age of, of like 18 or 19. Um, so... I was searching for a subject, and I realized if I wrote about real things that happened to real people, there was something sort of true that I could cleave to, you know? And so I started writing for various student publications in school. Um, I actually edited a magazine. And then um, after school, I sort of set off on, you know, your Kerouacian post-university phase, hitchhiking around. And this school, you were in Canada. You yeah, were in Canada, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And so... I started, I checked across Canada, and then I was on a sailboat for a year, and then I went to Europe, and was backpacking around and kind of freelancing for alt-weeklies, like Canadian alt-weeklies, and um, sort of indie magazines that wouldn't pay anything, but let me run a 6,000-word article. And did you, were you, did you know about pitching, mag like, pitching those places, or did you have an in somewhere, like you had a relative no. or something? No, I mean, I, there's no one, I don't know, I never knew anyone, um, or had anyone in my family who was involved in writing or publishing. I, I went to some Canadian college, so it wasn't like I was had any ins to the New York publishing scene. I, you know, like everyone else, I googled how to pitch an editor and really? learn some of the basic things, like keep it concise and write in proper grammar and, you know, have concrete material, but... I went through, yeah, just years of pitching people and having my work rejected. And, um, you know, slowly, I, I for Canadian newspapers or, or whatever, I would get in the occasional article. But mostly I was just enjoying myself traveling and backpacking and sleeping in ditches by the side of the road and or couch surfing and hitchhiking and didn't really need a lot to um, keep going and, and to experience things and meet people. And so were you, you were, collect, were you collecting at least small checks for this? Was there some sense of, hey, like, I can write, you know, I can write a... Actually, my, my earliest financial successes came from um, the awards scene. So I think I, I, think I wrote for, oh, for the Ayn Rand uh, Award essay contest. And, you know, <laughs> just all these different essays. I sort of scoured the web for, like, essay contests. Yeah. So I was making, like, a dollar a word just writing for, you know... Living off awards. I've never heard these, that before. So, you know, kids, that's, that's what you want to do. The Ayn Rand, you can get through Atlas Shrugged. Um, that one is a gold mine. But there's lots of them out there. So I had scammed a couple of essay contests... And that gave me a little nest egg, and I'd worked a bit. I mean, I was, I was you know, working odd jobs in my parents' basement working. 
was a portrait photographer at Sears at one point. But I had enough really? money that I was able to live as like a hobo in ex-Yugoslavia. Um, so wait, portrait photographer at Sears. So like, were you set up with the background and the and the yeah, like, like there's the there's like the the generic like you know gray flecked with white. There's like the magical like unicorn Charlie over the rainbow. There's uh, you know like Teddy's first block with a letter of the alphabet on it. There's you know yeah, and there's various kids of various ages. That's that's what it is. See, if we really got into this, we could use it. There's like a metaphor there for how you now paint portraits of people in the way that you right it. using the same cliched building blocks exactly and, you know static backgrounds yeah um, that everyone else does. well we'll get we'll get there later anyway right. so then so then you went abroad yeah so I, w- I went abroad and was traveling around ex Yugoslavia and uh, looking back now uh, the fact that in my early days writing I was living lean enough that I was just spending a lot of time immersed in interesting subjects and writing uh, on the cheap, and especially because you know, so at that point I was in less developed countries where it's a lot cheaper to live. I was able to write an article for nothing or for very little. Um, and yeah. Then I, well, now people will say, uh, I've had people say to me, "Well, the problem is all these people write for free now, so it just you should never write for free because it devalues your work and it devalues everyone else's work and." Uh, it's sort of like, you know, you're ruining the whole thing because you're out there. But to me, I, I, I feel like that's the way to, you know, that's your advantage. You're young, you don't spend much money. Your advantage is I can go out and, and get a story and say, pay me whatever you want. As long as you're getting something out of it. I think there's a lot of what you could call exploitation because people work for free and they're cranking out meaningless boilerplate blog posts that aren't, interesting to them or, 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 you know, just, it's just a content farm. And so that, um, I mean, yeah, the question of you shouldn't write for free because we're some sort of guild that we have to keep the prices at a certain level is problematic, but, um, it's not working. It's not working. It's not going to work. You know, but if, if you can do, if you're doing something you love and what you're writing, you're proud of, and it's interesting to you, um, then, you know, do it for as little money as you can afford to, I say. Yeah. So then you're, you're, you're in Eastern Europe now. Are you just basically on a continuous journey at this point, or are you like going home and, and then going out to different places? Are you sort of just traveling the world? And no, part of my part of like the like the metaphysics of traveling that I was entertaining at that time was that you had to have no return ticket and no fixed schedule, and only then would you know your journey be open ended enough to you know sort of truly metastasize into this like radical adventure. Um, anyhow, that was the romantic idea I had at the time. So no, I didn't have any return ticket, just a dwindling bank account that I would <laughs> sort of, you know, re- replenish in meager amounts. With awards, time. With, by winning With, awards. By winning, by, you know, yeah, by delivering fresh takes on the, you know, groundbreaking work of Ayn Rand, <laughs> among other things. So. So, so then, is this the same trip where you ended up in Afghanistan the first time? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically what happened was... When I got to Uzbekistan, Afghanistan was right there, and I was really interested in the place. So I got a visa, and I actually hitchhiked across the border from uh, Termez in the southern border of Uzbekistan to Mazar Sharif in northern Afghanistan. And I remember, you know, I found some flea bag hotel, probably the most vile, like wretched place I've ever stayed in. The hallways were basically like a spittoon. Um, 
but it was run by this really sweet group of young men, Afghan men. And they took me in and like schooled me. They helped me start learning Persian and took me to get some new, some Afghan clothes and just taught me the ropes. And we went and got hand churned ice cream and held hands walking in the light of the blue mosque at night. And, you know, they, they, uh, they, that was the start of a long period that I spent in Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. I spent nine months in Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. But this, and so this is now, I mean, this is a different kind of, uh, you know, there's lots of people who go, they're done with college, they're going to go bum around in Europe, Eurorail Pass and whatever, backpacking. But you, you obviously, you have a different agenda at this point, which is what? You know, is it just curiosity? Just Afghanistan's interesting. There's something going on there. Did you feel like you had a journalistic instinct? Like, I, I want to have a story to tell or a danger, you know, a little bit of a danger fetish? Like, what do you think was going into, like, taking that right turn, left turn? I guess if you're going south, you took a left turn, sort of? Yeah. Well, it was kind of the... It was the instinct of climbing into some mountain range and seeing the highest peak and being like, ah, I want to go there, you know? Uh-huh. And at that point, it, I did have a lot, I think, to prove to myself. Um... And so there was definitely a uh, an aspect of thrill seeking and adventure that brought me there, um, but it, it, I think it did mature fairly quickly into, um, you know, if if not, it was still some sort of like privileged thrill seeker paradigm, but it was an engagement with the place and just be, becoming fascinated and enthralled by it and learning this language and. Um, this history and the story and, and being moved by the, the people and the, and the place. So the play you really started as kind of curiosity and maybe a little thrill seeking, but then you actually fell in love with Afghanistan in some way. Yeah. I don't think, I think like a month beforehand, I really didn't think about Afghanistan anymore than I thought about any other place actually. And it was not, I mean, 2008, this is, this is uh, it's a dangerous time to be at least in certain parts of Afghanistan already, you know, the war is kind of falling pieces at that point right? yeah yeah that was i think 2008 2007 was were the were the years where it really kind of hit the inflection point and things just deteriorated across the board in the country yeah and you're you're uh like your family back home you're just sort of like hey, I'm, yeah <laughs> i was in croatia now i'm in afghanistan like everything's going fine everything's good met some nice people i didn't actually tell my parents that i was in afghanistan the first oh, time really? I went. yeah so I, I just was in Uzbekistan for an extended period, basically, <laughs> just loving it. And well, so, also not the most, you know, vacation friendly. That's not really like a backpacking destination Uzbekistan? either, is it? I don't know. It's not bad been... actually. I would yeah. actually highly recommend it to, to all you adventurous travelers out there. Huh. And Tashkent is a lot of fun. I guess, but it's it's actually, a, a really journalist can't get in there now. No, no, you can't go in as a journalist. But there's, you know, there's plenty of Western tourists to go there. It's quite beloved by the French, actually. Yeah. That shows you what I know about Uzbekistan. Basically nothing. I can recommend it. Um, so then you're bumming around Afghanistan. You end up staying for nine months. But this is where we get to you know, the first piece of mm-hmm. yours that I read and probably like an American audience, a lot of them read, was mm-hmm. the Harper's piece about Spin Boldak. Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Um, where you're basically, I mean, gonzo is not the right word for it really because gonzo has so many negative connotations now about mm-hmm. combining fiction and fact. But... You know, you're in Pakistan 
basically like trying to get across the border to talk to a smuggler. So just t tell a little bit about that. That's where you were when you first found out about that. And then mm -hmm. I'm really interested in sort of like what your mentality was and why you decided to cross the border in that story. Because sure. most people, 99% of people would not do that. Well, basically what had happened was I'd been in Iran um, for a couple of months, which is a w wonderful place. But I crossed the border from southeastern Iran into western Pakistan, an area called Baluchistan that actually sort of straddles the those that that sort of you know tri-border area of Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, and uh, quite a volatile, um, forbidding place. Yeah, it, it itself is a dangerous place. I mean, that's it a... is. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a happy place. And Quetta. So I, you wait. What happens is, I mean, this is actually a classic. The classic hippie trail, right? Went from Eastern Europe through Turkey, down through Iran, through Quetta, and then into Pakistan, lowland Pakistan, and then across the border into India. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is a well-traveled route, but it's very, you know, I think especially in, it's deteriorated a lot since I've even been there. But um, I don't think there's a lot of tourists on it now. But even then, when I went, it wasn't that unusual to be a tourist crossing through. But most of the time, they don't linger in Quetta, and um, that was. Uh, where I where I ended up, and um, I met these uh, guys on the street there one day, just walking around, and they were driving by in a Land Cruiser, and they stopped and looked at me, and I think it was because I'd just come from Iran, so I wasn't wearing traditional clothing, and they spotted me for foreigner and waved me over, and they were like, "Oh hi, how are you?" in English, and I said hi, and you know they're they like, "Are you a foreigner?" And, I was like, yes. And then they're like, oh, well, welcome. Come with us. Come with us, right? So this is kind of on the level of, like, don't take candy from strangers. <laughs> Journalism 101 is, like, don't get into the Land Cruiser with strange men at the AFPAC <laughs> border. You That's know? basically, if you could take the rules of journalism in terms of staying safe, that would have to be in the top five. It's a great scene in the story, actually. I love the scene in the story because you, you sort of you, you make this, like, halfway rationalization that's, like, you know, they seem to have you know, kind of like doughy faces or something. So maybe they weren't like the hard-ass guys. I can't remember exactly how you phrase it. Yeah. You're like, they seemed safe enough. So I figured, what the hell? You know, that's, it's yeah. madness. It, well, it was, it was um, I don't know, it was a gut call. Um, they, they did have soft, they had like, I could, you know, there's something, there's a softness about them. I mean, they actually turned out to be, you know, badass drug traffickers. But they, you know, they didn't have the hard faces and hands of killers and there was just something about their vibe that seemed to me to be right. And um, I don't know. I can't explain. I don't know. I don't know if in retrospect I like correctly evaluated some information that was real, or I just got lucky. But well, it was what what probably five seconds where they said, "Hey, you want to come with us?" Right, and then you right. basically yes or no. But then so then there's this moment where you you decide not to say that you're a journalist. Yeah. Um, in general, I wasn't saying that because it was just wasn't a place where you should, you know, you don't want to be noticed by um, the state or by uh, the various groups that are in that area. You just attract a lot more attention to yourself as a journalist. So I hadn't, I was sort of in a mode of like, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, so when they were like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, well, I'm a tourist. I'm traveling. I'm taking pictures. And that was fine. 
And then I, and, and after a while, I just decided not to tell them. And do you think they, they believe that? So... <laughs> uh, you're, you're in Pakistan in the most dangerous... I mean, one of the most dangerous places for, you know, if, like, an American audience, you're, you're somewhere that people would not be going. And so it is. One of the things like you learn about the most dangerous places on Earth is that if you are sort of invisible and, like, slotted into the local lifestyle, then it's, very, it's a normal enough life. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, so as long, like, you know, with my half Asian features, I'm vaguely ethnic. I've fit in for Pakistani or Afghan or Iranian, a lot of things. Uh, dressed in local garb with these guys, it felt very normal to walk through the market and order something and just hang out. Yeah. So you had some element of like passing, you know, in terms yes. of ethnicity. And... Yes. And that was a big factor. I mean, not one that I can take a lot of credit for, but the mere fact of being able to stand around unobserved and go through these places. I mean, eventually going across the border wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, who's that, Western... you know, who's that white dude right. or white woman, right. you know, right. especially right. taking notes or doing anything. So it's, a, it's, it was, it's an unfair advantage, um, but, a, but a big one. Um, but just to, to get back on the story, basically um, what happened was is that they, and this is all in the, in the Master of Spin Black piece, um, in Harper's, um, they told me they were taking two metric tons of opium. They're smugglers, Pashtun smugglers, whose tribes straddled the borderlands, have been smuggling shit across the border for decades, if not hundreds of years, and we're doing that now with the hottest commodity, opium, and cars and, and electronics, a bunch of other stuff. And so I asked them more about, you know, how is it that you're smuggling two tons of opium across the border? And they're like, oh, well, we're... We're hooked up with Razik, like the big man, General Razik. He's the boss. I was like, well, who is Razik? And it turns out he's the most powerful police commander in southern Afghanistan. So I was like, well, smelling a story. I'd like to meet Razik. Do you think you could take me to Afghanistan the next time you go to smuggle the drugs and um, introduce me to him? And they're like, sure. So you did, a, this, you did have story instincts that kicked in right there that were sort of... This is if I can get to this guy. Oh yeah, so of this is of course. I could do something with this. Yeah, and it just struck me as like a a real story. Yeah, definitely one that no one else could get. I mean, that's the rare find is a story that no one else. Well, can when do get you to. meet on the street a bunch of drug traffickers who are hooked up with the most powerful police commanders in Afghanistan? Yeah, once in a while, but, but. I mean, this is so. This is an interesting thing. Um, I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but the serendipity of that moment. And the fact that it so actually what we were what originally brought us here was the talk about you know journalism as a vocation how do you get started in it how do you, you know that was my breakthrough before um, I had written that article I'd never really published in any American publications or magazines um, just newspapers all weeklies free indie journal mm-hmm. and then I published in Harper's. And it was, you know, for someone who, again, never worked or interned anywhere in any sort of publishing house um, or, or magazine, uh, didn't have any connections, didn't have any friends who were writers, um, it was literally like being handed the key to the kingdom, right? And it's not, it's not like it's easy to write long form or be a journalist now, but it's not impossible. And it did seem at times impossible beforehand because, you know, you just... You're just looking at a million locked doors and knocking yeah. on them and no one answers. How many people want that Harper slot, which is a slot that 
you know, Harper's probably had 15 stories in the can that people had been, you know, waiting for their story to run. Even writers, you know, who write for them all the time, you know. Right. It's just like those slots are so coveted and then and then you get one, you know, kind of from from a almost a sideways entry point, but I th- what's really interesting to me is like about the doing of it because I was I was reading this um Jeffrey Taylor, the guy he's written for Atlantic for years, written mm-hmm. about Russia, and there was right. some interview with him where he's talking about travel writing or something, how he got started, and he said something like, um, "I just wanted to live an epic life. Like my goal was to live a life where I was sort of like the hero of this epic, <laughs> and then everything else." I'm probably mangling what he actually said, but right. you know, as I remember it, you know, everything else kind of flows from that. Huh. And this has an element of that where. You know, yeah, you you saw the story. There's two parts of it. There's seeing the story, but then there's also saying, "I am the I'm going to go do this." Not because you could have come home, pitched the story, said, "Hey, will you send me here? Right. Fly me back, and I'm going to do it." But at what point did you actually? What point did you make contact with Harper's? Well, what happened was, um, basically, I stayed in quite a long enough to ascertain that they were you know, solidify our friendship and ascertain that they were interested in taking me across the border. But I had to go meet someone in another part of Pakistan. So I left and didn't actually come back to um, Quetta for a couple months. And basically, I had pitched, I pitched the Atlantic actually on the story and they said no. And then I pitched Harper's before I was going back to Quetta. And I said, um, you know, listen, I'm going to go across the border with these drug traffickers, and I think we're going to have a really interesting and important story as a result. Are you interested? And um, Bill, who's at Wire, who's my editor at Wired now, was like... Bill Wasik. Yeah, he's like, he's like, yeah, why don't you go across the border with drug traffickers and let me know how it pans out. <laughs> He and, probably thought he would never hear from you again. Yeah, I mean, no, he said it more in a more kindly <laughs> way than that. But that was the gist of it. It's like, you know, if you're either like not bullshitting or um, make it, and and you make it back alive, then talk. Let's talk. So that was the point that I, I that I pitched Harper's, and I, you know, I was going. Uh, so I went back, and a series of insane events happened um, that I won't I won't get into. But eventually, I managed to go across the border. It was just, you know, the, the psychological aspects of being in these situations, I think are, are the most, um, grueling and sort of difficult to describe. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a combat journalist per se. Most of my work involves sitting on floors, cross-legged, getting prime people's stories. You know, some of the work I do is dangerous, but it's dangerous in the sense that, like, something really bad could happen, but probably not. Yeah, you could be kidnapped. You could be oh, yeah. or, or killed or whatever, right? Yeah. But but other, otherwise, it's just normal. And so it's not like you're, you're, like, everyday bombs are going off and shooting and you're, like, in there with the troops and there's just, like, lots of noise and sound and fury. Um, it's just there's this sort of background crushing psychological pressure where you're not only aware of risk, but you're constantly calculating what, a, what, what you know, an acceptable risk is when you're making these decisions. 
and especially as like a complete amateur who doesn't have any training or background, who's never done this before, um, it's really difficult to find any sort of real, you know, objectively grounded basis for making those calculations, which means you keep running over them again and again in your head without achieving any satisfactory result. So that that sort of like crushing psychological pressure but spread out through like a long period of, of almost like incredibly inane boredom because these places, like the, these end of the world places are not, you know, very fun or lively places to be. There's a lot of good, interesting things about them, but, you know, people don't have very big, great social lives. There's not much in the way of entertainment. There's no, there's no restaurants. There's nothing, you know, people are bored. They are bored, you know, and so are you. That's in that Harper's piece. There's a there's an element of just waiting. Yeah, you're, you're waiting wait. for the for the general to to show up. And you're waiting. Like, He'll be back I, in two weeks. He'll yeah, be back in two weeks. And he just I just sat around like the show around this like car dealership in Spinboldak on the border, listening to people speak in Pashto language in their hand at all, and like swatting flies and vaguely aware that I was like in mortal danger. <laughs> you know what I mean? But this this is <laughs> like, I mean you're actually yeah you're out on your own in terms of journalistic rules, but I think any official sort of rules that you had would have told you to go home. Or yeah. To, you know, to not no, I do mean, it I, asked, I asked a couple, I asked a guy who became a good friend of mine, uh, Graham Smith. He's a longtime correspondent in Kandahar for the Globe and Mail. Before I went, I was like, hey, Graham, I know you've written a lot about Kandahar, fan of your work. Um, I'm going to do this trip. I'm thinking about it, and I was wondering, like, what do you recommend I do? He wrote me back. He's like, um, he's like, dear Matthew, like, please don't do this. It's like, terrible idea like you'll probably like get kidnapped or like killed like in summary i can't recommend it anyway you do this is a terrible idea well now your blood is on his hands because you've asked him for advice if he had said yeah you should do this and that then you got killed he would feel like oh i encourage this kid i mean there's um you know without getting too too into this can of worms um there's oh you know there's no real objective framework for deciding what the value of your life is versus, you know, the value of a story or adventure is, right? I mean, there's, there's like, lots of pieties we can say about, like, your life is never worth a story or someone died doing heroic things. But um, especially when you go to places where people are getting killed for the silliest reasons and a life is worth so little, um, you realize you don't necessarily have to, you know, value yourself as this, like, precious commodity that can't be risked in any way. And that's just a personal choice, and it's actually a very selfish one because obviously, you know, if you have loved ones, then you're affecting them by by making that choice. But in any case, it's just a—I mean, it's a different headspace that you'd have it. And sometimes I, f- I find now, since I've been living back in New York for a while, it's hard to remember what it was like to be there, sitting in that border, like in this sort of ascetic uh, mode of existence. Yeah, no, I mean, at that point, that's not even you're on you're on assignment for somebody, and you're like, I'm going to get the story. I mean, you were going to get the story, but you were sort of, it was all perspective. You know, it was all sort of like, I can make something out of this, but not, you know, you're weighing of this kind of low level daily risk, but it's low enough that this sort of, it's not like you're running through bullets that you would say, okay, maybe this isn't worth it. It's like right. it's all this this evaluation. But the but one thing I am interested in at this point is. You know, does this general, when he finally meets you, I mean, what is, again, like, what does he think you're doing there? Like, if if you're a tourist up to the point I could see, like, they bring you across the border, and then is he, like, 
why does this kid want to meet me? Or does he kind of think, like, you must be important in some way, or you must, like, there must be some reason for this, or this, you wouldn't be waiting around all this time to Well, I don't, think he, I don't think he thought about it that much. Yeah. Um, I actually, you know, the irony of the story is I didn't really meet Rozik. I, I shook his hand and saw him. <laughs> But he was busy and didn't have time to like, talk to me. So he had like, come back. Uh, it's like uh, General Rosick has a cold. It's <laughs> yeah, like, right. You report around him and then you get your moment. <laughs> I did. Um, I mean, because I, originally I, I, my plan had been to go with these guys across the border. They were going for like just a day, a day trip. And they would meet Rosick and like shake his hand. And I would shake his hand and go back. And I was kind of like, okay, well, I established the link conclusively, right? But what happened was we got to the border and, like, something blew up. And then they panicked. They are like, do you want to go back? And this is, like, the moment where you're like, yeah, I should go back. But I was like, man, I just sat around Quetta for a month, like, losing my mind in boredom, waiting for these guys. No, fuck this. I don't care if I die right now. <laughs> I'm, I, there's no way. That, nothing, nothing could possibly justify, like, the month of boredom I just went through. So um, they went ahead ahead of me. And then someone came back for me and, like, brought me across. And the, but the gist of it was that by the time I got there, Razik had, like, gone. And then they were like, oh, listen, Razik's gone, man. We just saw him, but he left. He's like, we're going back to Pakistan now. Um, if you want, you can stay with our friends here in Kandahar. These are the, if, wait for if you had back. gotten kidnapped and then we, someone would do in the retrospective on what happened there, all these decision points where they would have said, like, why? 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 why he, he had yeah. the chance to... Well, that's the thing is that, there, you know, in retrospect, you know, there's a lot of, there's a few people I can think of, um, to both Canadians, actually, Amanda Linhout, who was kidnapped, a journalist in Somalia, and um, another kid, Colin Rutherford, in, in um, Afghanistan, who were kidnapped, who were both sort of amateurs who went out and were interested in doing dangerous stuff and haven't gotten a lot of sympathy in the press. Um and yeah, but I mean, that pro, me. pro, the pros get kidnapped too. I mean, they do, but when the pros get kidnapped, it's okay and it's part of the job and they have support and people right. paying their ransoms. Yeah, if you got kidnapped at that point, it's not like Harper's gonna pay your ransom no, to, no, to get you like, out. They didn't, they didn't no, know no, who you were. No one would give him a fuck except um, my family. So then you come back, you work on the story. How, how did you deal with, um, with like notes and you know, you got to deal with fact checkers at that point about what happened and. Mm. You know, did they did they give you? And plus, you're coming in, you know, as like a so-called amateur. Mm-hmm. You know, were they how hard on on you were they in terms of like? Well, verifying? what happened was, as I went back and then I I emailed Bill and I was like, hey man, um, I did it. I went across the border. I saw met Razik. I got a wild story. Um, you know, but I need to go back. Uh, I need to go back to Kandahar this time. You know, with a fixer and you know, properly report the story and double check everything and get a sort of objective context for it. And you need to fucking <laughs> give me a contract and pay for the expenses. And he said yes. And so I went back to Afghanistan and went with the fixer and reported in Kandahar. So a lot of the like the the sort of conventional reporting structure was put in place then. I see, I see. So I, 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 I double-checked everything that I had been told and sort of learned on this, this story. Um, but I also, you know, I, was like, I would, like, go to the outhouse while I was in the first trip, time on the trip. I would go to the outhouse and, like, pull notes out of my underpants, like, write, like, <laughs> numbers down on them so I'd remember them. 
That's and... what I was wondering. That's what I was, <laughs> that's what I was hoping that there yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Of... No, no, I'm I... just keeping my diary with full of facts about you and everyone that I've yeah, met. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of I have a pretty good memory, and I remembered a lot of um, names and, and and places and stories, but stuff like numbers and, and specific details, uh, I kept in a wadded collection of notes in my underpants. <laughs> Which you then later handed over to some Harper <laughs> yeah, to right. like thumb through and try to figure out what what was real. Well, actually, that was the funny thing is that at that point, um, I had never been fact checked, so fortunately, I don't make shit up. But I did um, sort of just keep everything in my notebook. So along with notes for the reporting, there'd be like my heartfelt like existentialist ramblings and poetry. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Really like maudlin shit from like my lonely nights in the Afghan desert. And uh, so I had to like reluctantly send off the whole notebook to uh, to Chris Beha. And I'm sure they must have had a like laugh at passing it around uh, the office. But apparently it was it was Gideon Lewis Kraut's piece on um, Medicinal marijuana farms in oh, California. Yeah, yeah, I remember I that. Just run and, and I just t- run, and Chris was like, "Don't worry, Gideon's notes are even worse than yours." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the medicinal marijuana quotient yes. probably doesn't yeah, help you. He said they were even more disjointed. Your notes might so. have certain musings. I'll have to ask him about that. I'll right. have Mon and ask him about that. Um, so, well, not to get to, not to get uh, derailed into uh, discussions that have been in the news lately about fact versus fiction, but. Uh, but you know you're coming at this from you're not a, you know you can go to J school or or have someone train you in what you know how how to gather information and the proper way to do this or that if there is even a proper way. But you know if ever there was a case where you could have told any little story about that adventure that wasn't checkable mm-hmm. and said, "Nah, this guy disappeared." So you know I don't want to ask if that ever crossed your mind, but like where did you get the where do you think you got the fidelity to the facts that you had? Well, the thing is, with that story, there was no need to make anything up. I mean, I couldn't have made up some of the stuff that's in there. Uh, it was so good. Um, and you know, it's not like it hasn't crossed my mind, you know, on subsequent assignments, that it would be easier if, I, if the quote was a little bit different or if, you know, whatever. I mean, there's... there's um, there's a gradient sometimes because you know you tr- especially stuff that is translated, you know your 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 translator's poor translation, you're rephrasing into like better English. You know there's a line where you it becomes misleading that you cross. Um, so there's lots of temptations definitely, uh, especially as a foreign correspondent. I mean I remember there was um, a column. The probably the best thing I've read on this is a column in the Economist. Um, that was in response. It was like Bago or something, so I don't, we don't know his name. But it was uh, called The Economist, and it was about um, Johan Hari. When Johan Hari, who is a, who was a sort of you know per- personality journalist for The Independent, yeah, yeah. it emerged that he, w- he, would, he was doing interviews with subjects and then like lifting um, quotes out of either previous interviews or the subject's own work. That and, was amazing. As if they had said to them. So it was, yeah, it was a really hilarious Twitter, um, Twitter meme. Um, about uh, Yo and Hari, it was like interviews by Hari. Be like, so this is a story all about how. It's like interview my interview with the French Prince of Bel Air or whatever. But, uh, but that's not even like uh, I'm going to gild this thing a little bit. Like this could be a little better. It's more like 
I'm setting a clock on Google for the time before someone catches me. Like, yeah, really. I mean, there's there's a whole pragmatic argument to be made about it, obviously, but there's also the existentialist argument, which is what Bagot made in The Economist. Probably the best thing, because, you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't want it more, I don't like moralizing very much, but he said that, he's like, okay, listen, I was a foreign correspondent for a while. I realized very quickly that it's super easy to make shit up. It's really easy. You know, you, some peasant tells me on the road the perfect quote, right? It's easy. No one will ever know. And you know what? I also realized lots of foreign correspondents do it. I, you know, you've seen it. There's this, I mean, I don't, I don't know Fisk and I don't know his work, but there's a whole discussion right now about whether Fisk, you know, really flew in the cargo uh, bay of an Apache and <laughs> all this stuff, right? Yeah, well, there's even, you know, Kapuscinski. Well, Kapuscinski made shit up, yeah, definitely. That's, I mean, that's, that's incontrovertible. Um, and so there's a, there's a question about the morality of it, but also the fact that like journal, modern journalism, contemporary journalism, don't forget this has changed over time. Standards we we apply, but contemporary journalism doesn't have room for making shit up. Um, but the argument this guy's saying, he's like, all right, you know, I realized very easily, very quickly that it would be easy to make shit up, but the reason I didn't is because for me it would have created all these like insuperable existentialist existential dilemmas. Um, where I wouldn't know why I was writing anything or what the point of what I was doing is or where to start, where fact it started and fiction ended. And only by sort of like cleaving to the true story and just being sort of puritanical about what I could and couldn't write could I like ward off these like whole, this whole morass of like questions and ident- this identity crisis. Yeah, that, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that that is... Because the whole thing kind of unravels. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to make up a little bit of this story in Afghanistan. Well, why not just wake up, make up being in Afghanistan? Like, what? You suddenly, your purpose for actually having gone through all this work to get to where you are, is it evaporates. Exactly. And then the and the other thing, the other thing is that it's like your virginity. You know, once you lose it, it's gone. So if you never make, if you sort of have the idea that you'll never make anything up and you'll never cross that line, you'll never compromise. Because um, you always do it for sordid, you don't do it for noble reasons. You're not Mike Daisy. I want to bring a greater message to the world. You're doing it because you didn't get the right quote. You're doing it because you're you're you don't have time. You're doing it for selfish, you know, self-serving reasons. Yeah, it just didn't pan out. Story didn't pan out the way that you right envisioned it. And so you know, if you if you if you keep discipline, um, you know what you keep your discipline by thinking I've never crossed that line consciously. Um, and that absolute value of like never having crossed that line is worth more than any like instance of saving yourself some time or making the story slightly better. Mm-hmm. So you had this character. I mean, I don't want to make it out like you've only ever written about this one general. But, right. Because um, you've written recently for GQ about the embassy attack. Siege of September 13th. Um, yeah, um, which was an amazing story. Um, but you also, I mean, it's this incredible thing that, that doesn't happen a lot with long form stories in particular, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times you go write these stories and then you just never you talk to the characters again or or anything. They're just these one off things. Right. But you have a guy that you you had this whole story about finding him and everything else, and then it turns out that, you know, he's committed this massacre, or maybe even at the time it was sort of you know, he had done certain things like that. And then you go back to do it for The Atlantic, which is this piece that's now finalist for the National Magazine Award. We'll know soon. If you won, um, maybe by the time this airs, you've already won. Um, but the 
the idea of having that those two stories connect, and even for different publications, which is kind of interesting. So I'm, I am interested about how the second one came about, whether you were following it the whole time. You've been back multiple times, I know, between. Yeah. I've been going back and forth, and I've been going back to Kandahar a lot since I wrote that first piece. So I've been, you know, and Razik is actually, despite my uh, my work, has been on a sort of meteoric career path, and he's now chief of police for Kandahar province and, like, America's number one ally. And so he's still a really important character, even more important character than he was when I first wrote about him in Kandahar, so I was always hearing about him. And, um, but though, actually, actually, from the very first um, trip that I made, I'd heard about this massacre that he had been involved in, where he had basically kidnapped and gunned down um, 13 innocent people, 16 innocent people. Um, including young, like, youngish. Yeah, including a young boy. Born. Like, it was basically one of his rivals w- was among them, but he just killed the other uh, 15 and uh, I think I'm getting my numbers confused. I think it's 15 people uh, who were killed. And he, yeah, lied and said they were Taliban. And this story was covered up by Karzai and the Americans. So I heard that at the time. And I was sort of gathering string on it. It was kind of like, you know, Department of Unreported Massacres uh-huh. in, in Afghanistan, right? Like, there are a few. I would imagine um, a few, yeah. Razik's is different because, one, because it was sort of in the new post, you know, American era where things are supposed to be getting better. Uh, and two, he was, you know, this golden boy of the U.S. And there are, we theoretically have laws um, against giving military assistance to people who are involved with gross violations of human rights. It's called the Leahy Amendment. It's a real law. And this guy also, I mean, per the first story, I mean, he's a smuggler. He's an opium smuggler. He's a yeah. I mean, I mean he's, he's, he's a he's a warlord type of yes. guy who, I mean, in some ways, like he incredibly encapsulates so much about the war and yes. our alliances and everything in this in this one. The figure. fact that we're so beholden and wedded to Razik that even after all this negative attention, um, we still have no choice but to part, or, or the military thinks they have no choice but to partner with him. I think, yeah, encapsulates the, the dilemmas and ultimately what will be the tragedy of our involvement in Afghanistan. Um, so you know about this massacre and you're, you're starting to think, well, all right, there's enough here for me to go write about this, to go back and investigate it. Or then you pitch it and you... I'm trying to think. He had been sort of partnered with the Americans for their big surge in Kandahar in 2010. And so I thought, oh, hey, I can call it this information I have about this massacre that I heard, I heard happen and it put it, I'll put it into like a blog post. And so I actually wrote an email to the website, which I won't name, but it's like, Hey, uh, I have this article I'm going to write about Razik being involved in the massacre. Uh, are you interested? And the guy was like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll get back to you. And I never heard back from him. This is a blog like, post that you were, Gonna get paid? What? Nothing. 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 I was just like, hey, here's here's like a few thousand words, and then uh, so that I kind of like sat on it, and Rosie got made chief of police, and then I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I pitched it the Atlantic, and I'm still kind of surprised, but they accepted it. They took it. And so rejected blog post. Became accepted a pitch. What four thousand word story? Five thousand. It was a five thousand word story. 
and then I went back to so I, I had a budget to go back to Kandahar and then over the summer it developed that he was actually now that he was chief of police at Kandahar City was like engaging in this like brutal campaign of like torture and to root out the Taliban and anyone who, who crossed him yeah Unsur- well, for us <laughs> well, he's on our side yeah who would have thought and so that's when it kind of became a, a really hard hitting um, work of sort of breaking journalism and again this is like uh, you know it just I'm so interested in in you know J school and how people learn uh, how to report right you know it, but you could say well the first piece the Harper's piece you mm-hmm. did or the travel piece the kind of piece you were doing before that were you know more a little more experiential kind of things yeah. but at this point you're doing investigative reporting at, at the level you know International investigative reporting is basically yeah. like the most difficult reporting you could probably do sure. in a dangerous place, in a in a war in a place where there's a war going on. And so, you know, what? How did you know how to do that? Just well, like, well I mean, I've always been a, a very autodidactic, so I just read a lot of journalism. And I mean, you don't you don't need to. It doesn't take a lot to learn that uncovering a massacre by our, our allies is newsy, um, but. The it was a beat that I studied, you know. It was after I, I beat, you know, became really committed to and besotted by Afghanistan. And I started learning, reading all the books that I could and all the journalism I could, and learning the language and spending as much time there as I could. Um, that enables you to understand what is news, what is what hasn't been explored. Um, that you know, so this story was very much about that long arc. I learned about it in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and. Um, wrote the story in 2011 and uh that's a long i mean that's a long gestation gestation period for for even for a piece of you know that length that's i think you know if if there if there's something that enables you to find good stories or especially do good journalism it is devoting yourself to a beat and beginning to participate in the arc of the story so how do you feel about you know, a lot of the journalism that's done for American magazines in a place like Afghanistan in particular, um, it's like, you know, you could meanly call it like parachute, parachuting mm-hmm. in. You know, I've already mm-hmm. revealed my ignorance about the languages of Afghanistan. If I got assigned a story about <laughs> Afghanistan, I'd basically be, you know, reading everything I could for like two weeks. Right. And then showing up, you know, you've got embeds and things like that. So, you know, how do you, as a person who that is your beat, yeah. how do you look at that approach? Um, this you know it's a really interesting question. I, I think that there are some subject matters maybe that you can do where where understanding Afghanistan, its culture, its languages, its history, what other people have written about. I mean, you know, in in academia to write something in academia, you need to read a lot of what other people have written, right? You need to have a long bibliography and whatever. You can poke fun of that, but that's not a requirement in journalism. But there's a virtue in that having having read about something a lot, studied it. There's some subjects, like if you want to go and write about medical treatment of soldiers in the hospital on a military base, right? Right. You can, That's fine. You know, yeah. Um, You're talking about getting into the culture a little bit, getting in, right, really trying to understand more than sort of... I guess, I guess, you know, all the things that make a military intervention an occupation overseas, right, um, problematic, right? The lack of cultural knowledge, the sort of um, the way that we filter uh, things, the interests that we have, the, so- the social circles that we work in, all those things that make 
um, a military intervention problematic are reproduced in parachute journalism, in a sense. And so whether you know it or not, whether you're even whether you're fighting against it or not, um, parachuting in as the American into a conflict zone, that especially one that American troops are occupying, you know, risks reproducing a lot of the biases and, and, and sort of paradigms that are bound up in the problem of, like, a military occupation and intervention overseas. Mm-hmm. Do you, in terms of career-wise, do you worry about what happens when the U.S. troops go home? I mean, just in terms of, like, getting magazine stories placed about Afghanistan. Well, it's already happening. There's the, the interest, I think the interest, it's plateaued a bit, because, but the interest dropped off dramatically from the surge in 2009 and 2010, when it was Obama's war and all that jazz. People care dramatically less about Afghanistan than they did. Um, and they probably will just care like a little bit less and less and less until 2014 when the troops pull out and then it'll fall off a cliff, like Iraq. I mean, who cares about Iraq anymore, honestly? It's hard to sell a story about yeah, it's Iraq right now. No one cares. And like they also don't care about the other like hundreds of countries where we had, didn't invade. Right? <laughs> right. So, so. But does that, I mean, it, but you're going there. I mean, you're committed to going and, and, and being there. So what are you going to do? Well, it's like, what was his name uh, you mentioned earlier? Uh, he, oh, Jeffrey Taylor? Jeffrey Taylor, yeah. yeah. Uh, he wants to live his life epically. I think that um, I'd like to get back to that moment where I was on a road in Quetta and some men in a car were like beckoning toward me. And um, it, it's been interesting because I, I felt like I've gotten away from that as I've gotten more successful, I've, I've, I've had a lot more work and assignments, and since I've been living in New York, I'll often fly to Afghanistan for a month or two or three, and have a fairly tightly scheduled, you know, list of things that I need to produce, you know, I have the assignment, I have a month or two to make it happen, I need to deliver, and you, you know, I, ha- I have been, so far, I haven't catastrophically failed <laughs> in these assignments, <laughs> And I'm, I'm not at all, you know, ashamed of what I've been writing, but the sort of, you know, open texture and um, contingency and, like, gambling and, and rolling the dice of that early period in my, in my reporting, you know, has is, is really been lost. And I would like to get back to that, where if a rabbit hole opens up, I can just dive down it without any return ticket. And I think that, you know, unless you're David Grant and you magically pull from the air, like, <laughs> amazing stories, you know, you need to push yourself into that zone of contingency and have time to waste and kill chasing down leads. And so that's one reason why I'm, I'm moving back, is to have a lot more free time in a place where strange things happen. All right, let's stop it there. Sure. I can't wait to read those stories. Let's go get a beer. That's it. Would you look at that? We actually did an episode. That was the inaugural episode of the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky from Longform. Our other hosts are Aaron Lammer, also of Longform, and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. If you want to find any of the stories that Matt and Evan just discussed, they'll be in the show notes at longform.org slash podcast. If you want to read something entirely different, make sure to check out the new story from The Atomist or download the Longform iPad app at longformapp.com. We'll be back next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.